Welcome to this episode of Impact Education's Payer Talk CE program, the rapidly evolving atopic dermatitis treatment paradigm. My name is Steve Colusi, and I am the clinical pharmacy manager at Highmark, and I am joined today by Dr. Adam Friedman, professor and chair of dermatology and director of translational research at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. Welcome, Dr. Friedman. Thanks so much, Stephen. It's great to be here. So we have a lot to discuss today around atopic dermatitis, including new and emerging clinical treatments, the impact on patients' quality of life, and opportunities for health plans to improve outcomes for patients. But first, I want to let our audience know that this Payer Talk CE program is jointly provided by the National Eczema Association, Medical Education Resources, and Impact Education, LLC, and is designed for 0.5 contact hours of continuing education credit. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Sanofi and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, and we would like to thank them for their support. If you have any logistical or technical questions regarding claiming credit or other issues, please email impacteducation at info at impactedu.net. So Dr. Friedman, let's jump right in. There have been considerable advances in recent years in the treatment options for patients with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. What have we recently learned about this disease state and how does that translate into patient care? I mean, I think you hit it on the head with recent as for so long, atopic dermatitis, which is the most common form of eczema, and there are many eczemas, really was, it was a bench warmer in the world of R&D, in science and investigation. And I would argue now is the age of atopic dermatitis with incredible efforts to better understand the underpinnings of disease. And then that ultimately translates to therapies, as well as just overall approaches and how we manage this chronic condition. So in recent years, we've learned quite a lot, but it's just a small kind of notch on the belt with respect to really fully understanding the incredible complexity of this condition and how heterogeneous it really is when it comes down to what drives disease. But I think there's a lot more to learn in terms of how this condition behaves in different demographics, different ages, different genetic backgrounds, but we've certainly made a lot of headway. And, And certainly what we've learned probably the most about is the size of the problem. This is the second most common chronic inflammatory disease, just kind of shy behind acne vulgaris, which is the most common inflammatory skin condition. We've learned a lot about the burden of disease. And you know, I can give a shout out to one of my faculty, John Silverberg, who with him, among others, elucidated how impactful this condition is on a day-to-day basis. Things that you and I take for granted in terms of sleep, distractibility, able to participate both in work as well as social activities, patients with especially moderate to severe atopic dermatitis, every moment they're thinking about when are they going to start itching and when is their disease going to flare? And this really has a kind of downward spiral effect on their quality of life. And then even beyond that, how that translates to this condition being a systemic condition, a condition that is not just skin deep, how that translates to comorbidities in terms of having other medical problems associated with the underpinnings of this condition, but also 
comorbidities that evolve from uncontrolled disease, the impact on quality of life. And the list is quite lengthy, Stephen. It's really quite alarming how disabling this condition can be when it is undertreated or not treated at all. So I think that in just a very short order, we have learned quite a lot, but there's so much more for us to learn about both the biology, but also the behavior of this condition and how we really have to personalize our approach because really each patient with atopic dermatitis, while there are very common threads between them, there are a lot of nuances and differences as well that we have to personalize to them. Yeah. And I appreciate all of the detail that you went into there. I think you hit on a lot of points that I hope that we can dig into a, a little bit deeper as we go through the rest of this episode. But really, let's just get back to the idea of we've learned a lot very recently, right? And this is, I think, one of the more interesting things about atopic dermatitis is how recent our understanding has advanced as much as it has. And so how have those advances led us to new treatment options? Yeah. So I think we have to know where we were to understand where we are now. And pre-2017, if we're thinking about moderate severe atopic dermatitis, disease that is not going to be controlled by topicals or phototherapy, our options were off-label. We were marrying our understanding of how certain immune-suppressing medications work with what we understood about the disease itself. And so we were using medications, sometimes effectively, some not, that were never intended for atopic dermatitis. These include medications like methotrexate, mycophelate, mofetil, cyclo sporin, azathioprine. But the bigger issue here is that none of these were studied at the scale of what you would get from a clinical trial program. You know, the FDA pipeline, your phase three programs, the magnitude of data you would generate in terms of understanding how a drug works and also with the safety considerations. And can you generalize the use of this medication to the overall population of sufferers we just didn't have that. And so th there was a massive gap with respect to our ability to manage these more moderate severe paints, let alone there was just a paucity of innovation. We were using the same things for so long. And then with a better understanding of the biology, kind of understanding, well, what signals are starting the fire and keeping it going when it comes to the the burning and you know really relentless itch of atopic dermatitis that feels so good to scratch which is why patients keep on scratching further disrupting that barrier furthering inflammation we need to know what actually is driving that we we learned a lot about that recently in terms of key signals and that really allowed to the emergence of focus therapies, therapies that weren't just wiping out big chunks of the immune system, but really going after the perpetrators here. And that's really where the evolution of dupilumab came from, identifying key signals or cytokines like interleukin-4 and 13 in this case, and coming up with a solution that is personalized to the problem. And so that was, I think, a real paradigm shift for us to really taking more of a personalized approach. And this wasn't novel. You know, we did this with psoriasis and in other areas of medicine, they already start to do this, you know, in, in rheumatology, gastroenterology. So we we're just waiting for this to happen. I think it, it took a while to get here, which is also surprising given how large the burden, the size of this disease in terms of the number of people it affects, especially at the moderate to severe level. What does moderate, what does severe mean? Without a clinical trial program, it's hard to have a unified language and we're starting to get there but we need more work because we need to be able to use this language when we're talking to you guys across the river, so to speak, when we're trying to explain why a patient needs a systemic therapy versus just topicals. And I think with 
clinical trial programs, we start to get some of that language, some of the reproducible metrics to evaluate severity and improvement over time. But these are research tools. They aren't exactly clinically sensitive or clinically applicable. So I think we have some work to do there. But certainly taking this bench-to-bedside approach will yield great things like systemic therapies that are targeting certain parts of the inflammatory cascade. And because of all this amazing work by so many, highlighting the the underpinnings of disease, the burden of disease, potential for comorbidities, For the first time in dermatology history, we have seen so many new drugs enter the marketplace, get FDA approval in such a short time. And this is, we're we're living during an incredible time and it's extraordinarily exciting. But then also we have all these new options that are thrown at us. And when I say us, I mean you guys too, in how do we use them and how do we pick the right patient for the right drug? Again, you've given us so much to think about there. And and I want to discuss that last point about sort of the golden age of atopic dermatitis therapies. I mean, our pipeline is overflowing at this current moment, and we have so many new therapies to keep an eye out for, but we also have something in the range of four or five targeted therapies now that we need to figure out what we're doing with them exactly. And I think that's one of the challenges. And and I know that when we had previously spoken, we, we talked about how we are almost where we were in the, the early 2000s with the plaque psoriasis therapies, right? We had a a couple biologic drugs and 20 years later, we have 15, 16 drugs for plaque psoriasis now that are targeted therapies. But I think one of the things that you pointed out that I found very interesting is that the speed at which we are seeing these new therapies is a little bit unprecedented. It was years between FDA approval for different biologics for plaque psoriasis, where now we are dealing with back-to-back approvals at some points. And I think one of the things that managed care professionals need to think about is how does that impact overall treatment? And it's not that as soon as the drug gets FDA approved, all of a sudden, every provider knows exactly where that drug fits into therapy and everybody agrees on where that drug fits into therapy. And I think that from the health plan side, that's something that is definitely a struggle because we need to understand how providers are using these medications, what are the prescribing trends and, and so forth. But also, we're not seeing the patients on the day-to-day to necessarily understand the impact that this disease is having on them and how excited they are for new therapies and new options when if one biologic doesn't work, now they have a choice at three, four others that they've never had before. No, you hit on so many important points, Stephen. You know, I'm going to try to unpack all, all those great comments and questions, but I think you do hit on probably the, the most impactful point, which is we are in a new era, not just in terms of focusing on atopic dermatitis, which finally we are, and that's really important, but we have had the floodgates open. And I think that certainly highlights the burden of disease, right? Like your point about psoriasis, you get one systemic therapy, then we truck along, another one come along. It was a very progressive process, which I think had pros and cons, but more, you know, pros in the sense that it gave practitioners an opportunity to get comfortable, see where did they fit in, in the list of, of our armamentarium, which then also gave the payers an opportunity to see, all right, where does this drug come in? Forgetting even getting guidance from national societies, whether it be the American Academy of Dermatology, in the case of psoriasis, National Psoriasis Fund here talking to the National Eczema Association, you're frothing at the mouth trying to get our insight. Towards, well, what do we think? Where should we be using these? What do the experts think? But now you get so many that come out all at once. And, and just to re- relay an interesting anecdote, it was the day before I was supposed to give a talk at a national meeting about updates in atopic dermatitis, 
when the dual approval of two jack inhibitors from the FDA came through. And I'm just like, oh my God, I have, to, I have less than 12 hours. I got to work this into my talk. Like, what do we even do here? What do I even say about these? And, and it, it's kind of a similar point that you made because, okay, they're available to us. What do we do with them? And I think that does take some time. And I think the more staggered approach of getting one at a time gave you a little more opportunity. Not to say that I'm not immensely thankful that we have all these options because given the number of patients affected, given the heterogeneity of this disease, we need multiple options because not everything works for everyone. Like we need multiple options, especially for this condition. So it certainly was a, a welcome addition at getting so many at once. But I think then we need to be very critical about A, how do we think about these drugs? How do we kind of triage them? How do we stack them up in terms of our approach to a patient? What about the patient says we should go with one versus the other to start? And if that doesn't work over what time period, of course, would we decide that over? And then when we get to that time point, what are we going to go with next? Because you guys need to get understanding. And you're right, you're not in the clinic with us. It would be unfair of us to assume you see what we see. And that's where the language and the note is so important. That's where photographs, I think, are very important. I mean, certainly advances in electronic medical records have really enabled us to really track patients even photographically over time. In our EMR, we could take photos that are automatically uploaded into the patient's chart that we can use to track progress over time so that when you and your colleagues say, hey, can I see a note? It's not just a description. It's not just using a research tool to evaluate severity. We can show you what it looks like. And I think that's important to consider that we need to be very thorough in our documentation in order to prevent delays when it comes down to you guys making that decision. Should this patient be on this medication based on what you're seeing, what is written, or should they be on something else? Or was this recommendation even too overzealous given the severity of their disease? And I think it's great to have lots of options, but we need to be scientific about how we think about them, how we employ them, and also how we converse about them with the payers. Absolutely. And I want to come back to the disease severity topic that you mentioned here in just a moment. I just wanted to kind of close out that thought by going back to an earlier point that you mentioned regarding time in between approvals gives everyone a chance to react. And one of the pieces associated with that is that slower approvals or greater time in between approvals also gives the opportunity for some of that head-to-head -head comparative efficacy data that managed care professionals rely on so heavily when we're trying to decide, is one therapy better than another? And to your point about plaque psoriasis and the time in between approvals, you know, we're seeing that the different endpoints in clinical trials have really shifted from PASI 50, now PASI 75, and even PASI 90, PASI 100 in certain clinical trials. And we're still kind of sticking with the easy scores in atopic dermatitis, and it's all pretty stagnant at the moment. But as future therapies come out and additional competition will warrant better results, I think we're going to start to see that shift as well. And so that's something to look forward to. So I just wanted to ask you a quick question then about disease severity and the easy scores, the EASI, that's the eczema area severity index that you alluded to previously that's used frequently in clinical trials and really is sort of the sole basis that managed care organizations have to use at this current moment, because that's what the FDA is approving these drugs based on. So how frequently do you use the easy score in clinical practice? I think one of the benefits of a lot of these studies is they have several validated research tools. And it depends on the study. Easy is commonly employed. There used to be one called SCORAD. The one that has been used more recently as 
the kind of metric for primary outcomes has been the investigator global assessment, which is definitely a lot easier to use. And I absolutely employ it's a score of zero to four, zero being clear, four being train wreck, so to speak, one being almost clear, two being kind of in the middle, mild to moderate, and three being more moderate. Now, certainly that's somewhat subjective, and that's where you run into some issues in terms of, okay, well, does everyone assign a three to the same type of patient? And I think the answer is no, because of how diverse this disease state is. That I think we use a lot of, especially given that's a way to, to communicate to the payer that if, let's say, a study required a patient be a three or four to even get in, and for them to be a, considered a treatment success, they have to be clear, almost clear, and have a two-point reduction on that zero to four scale, well, that's a pretty easy thing to follow. Easy is not easy to follow. Easy is extremely strenuous. I think we document easy scores sometimes as a secondary opportunity to highlight, hey, this patient's really not doing so well. But I really rely more on IGA because I, I think it's a little easier and more practical in the clinical setting where you're seeing patients every 15 minutes or you're scheduled every 15 minutes. Let's be honest, you're always running about 45 minutes behind. That's the real dermatology world. But I think IGA is actually an easier way to document improvement over time. Just everyone needs to do it. And I think that would be a big success if every physician or practitioner would start by saying, this is the IGA. And every time the patient comes in, you document what that IGA is and maybe even comment to like, how has it changed over time? The other thing I want to comment to what you brought up, which is so important, are head-to-head -head studies. You cannot take two clinical trials published in two different, or maybe even the same journal, put them side by side and say, hey, look, more percent of patients in this trial met the primary outcome versus this trial. It doesn't work that way. It's not scientific. It has to be under the construct or within the confines of one clinical trial protocol. And we are starting to see that in atopic dermatitis. We do have some head-to-head -head JAK inhibitor to dupilumab data that has emerged you know, it's early, not a lot. And to be fair, in psoriasis, it took a long time before companies were willing to do that. So I think we need to put pressure on companies to do these head-to-heads as part of their programs or post-marketing programs, not just for us as clinicians to make a scientifically-based decision, but it also gives you guys information in terms of what you want to pay for for a particular type of patient. Fantastic. Thank you. All right. So based on what you are seeing as we kind of shift this understanding of atopic dermatitis, as you previously described, what are you learning more about these comorbidities? And in other words, is a rash just a rash? <laughs> I, I appreciate that question very much. You know, I think we're going to get to a point probably with most, if not all, inflammatory disease of the skin. And I, I really mean chronic inflammatory disease of the skin that it's all connected, that the inflammation we are appreciating visibly in the skin is elsewhere in the body. And that makes sense. Everything is connected. You, you don't have these different organ systems siloed and the skin being the largest organ has the greatest connectivity to every other structure underlying. And so we've seen this time and again in psoriasis was notably the poster child for highlighting the innumerable comorbidities that come with uncontrolled, especially moderate severe disease. We are seeing with hydradenitis separativa, we're seeing it with rosacea or lichen planus, and atopic dermatitis is no stranger to this either. Now, 
which comorbidities are the most notable, which are a direct result from the underlying pathophysiology versus as a result of how the disease impacts quality of life, that I think needs to be teased out. It already is to some degree. At the end of the day, does it really matter if one disease is begetting another, creating another, that that certainly argues that we as practitioners take an aggressive role to get curtail that impact on quality of life. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I think it's really important from the health plan perspective to recognize that we're not treating a skin condition alone. We're treating a lot of other comorbidities that come along with that. And controlling the atopic dermatitis means controlling those comorbidities means better overall well-being for the patient. And I think that that's a really important take-home message for the audience is just understand that it's not just about an itch. It's not just about a slight itch that these patients are having. This is a major deterrent on their quality of life. And also it's one of the things I've recently heard is that when you ask a patient the worst part about their disease, they rarely will report that it's the itch itself that is the worst part, right? It's the lack of sleep. It's some of the other pieces that that you mentioned that they can't go to work. They can't live a normal life because of this. You're absolutely right. And, you know, some of the words used to describe, you know, agonizing, debilitating, I think there's an added level of burden, not necessarily unique to atopic dermatitis, but with a visible disease. You know, when people see the skin, they see red or purple or flaky, the automatic assumption is it's infectious. And so there's this ostracism that occurs when someone's in public and they start scratching, people will move away. They will kind of slowly back away. And and that then adds to more of that burden. And so for these patients who, who are plentiful, they need options that are specific to their disease, but options that can be utilized long-term because this is a chronic disease. And then certainly access to care separate from just even getting, you know, having a drug on an insurance company's policy or the registry, that's great. But we also have to consider the bigger issues in terms of access to care, even getting to see a doctor. It could be almost worse to know that there are great drugs out there. You can't even get in to see someone to actually get you on that correct path. And so I, I think that adds to the burden of this disease. And that's true, I think, of a lot of chronic diseases that we, we have to be mindful that when we offer new approaches, we need to make it equitable for all and make sure that everyone has the same level of access to that care. I think that's the perfect segue into our our last topic here, which is really talking about health inequities and how atopic dermatitis is going to manifest itself in different ways in different patient populations. But more than that, how the treatment burden is going to be different for different patients. And I think you raised an excellent point about difficulty traveling Patients in rural areas may have a really difficult time getting to a dermatologist, and that's something I think we need to consider from the health plan perspective. With regard to prior authorization criteria and requiring patients see a dermatologist, I think this is really a tough nut to crack, if you will, in the sense that when you have drugs like these biologics that require significant expertise to manage. And really, they're not going to be our first line options. They're going to fit a very particular patient subgroup that really needs these medications, really can benefit from these drugs. It becomes a very significant challenge from the health plan side to say, well, we want you to see a dermatologist, but there's none around. So what do we do? Do we require you to see that dermatologist? Or do we allow general primary care providers to prescribe these biologic drugs that, again, require that expertise? So that's really a tough situation from the health plan side 
and of course, from the patient provider, just the overall healthcare system side as well. No, and, and honestly, Steve, if we can figure this out and come up with an answer to this during this podcast, we're done. We can retire and go off to some some nice, beautiful <laughs> beach, of course, with sunscreen and good photo protection, as a good dermatologist would have that on hand. So I think there are a couple issues you bring up, and I think... And it's funny, as you were saying that, I'm even thinking about some of the messages I get from our PA coordinator saying, hey, there needs to be this documentation. Did you see the patient in the last X number of months? And we need documentation recording their IgA, body surface area, like really to kind of highlight what is the severity? How are they doing on drug? Is it working? And therefore, if it's working, should they stay on it? If it's not working, should we pivot? So I agree. And these healthcare deserts, which are, they're not just in rural America. I mean, here, even in Washington, D.C., we have major deserts, arid healthcare deserts in areas like Ward 7 and 8, where there's not a single dermatologist. And so I think that's where getting creative to either A, improve access using, for example, telecommunications. And a big part of it is training. I think that's part of it. You can't just say, hey, just do telemedicine. Well, are there internet issues, bandwidth issues, technology issues? It's not a one-off answer. I think the answer has to be a composite of approaches to making sure that whatever that suggestion is, is going to be effective. But certainly telemedicine could be one way if you do it right, if you make sure all stars align with respect to ensuring that that televisit can be utilized to the best of its ability on both sides. First and foremost, do no harm. We need to make sure we're getting at the very large population of patients who are not on proper therapy. You know, the amount of patients who are on a systemic an FDA-approved system of atopic dermatitis appropriately who have moderate severe disease is dwarfed by the number of patients who aren't on proper therapy. And so clearly there, there is an unmet need there. But for me personally, I think telemedicine could be a really effective way to go about this. And I think the way we really roll this out and make it kind of standard practice is we got a partner. This can't just be on one side. It can't just be on physicians. It can't just be on advanced practitioners or industry or the payers. I think we need to come together and think about how do we do this effectively? Because as I mentioned before, it's like dang that carrot in front of someone like, oh, I have this great therapy that you're never going to be on and you're just going to continue to suffer. So I, I think we have a social responsibility to ensure that when a new drug comes out, when a payer says, yep, we're going to put this on our formulary, that we are actually able to get the patient who needs it in to see someone who can actually give it. That's an excellent point. And to that end, an ICER report from last year did state that all stakeholders have a responsibility to play to ensure that effective new treatment options for patients with atopic dermatitis are introduced in a way that will help reduce health inequities. And I think you raised a lot of very valid points. And actually, I want to go back X number of minutes here just to <laughs> something that you mentioned a long time ago, which was providers also play a really important role, not only when working directly with the patient, but when working with the health plan to communicate the need for these medications very clearly and efficiently and so forth. And I've heard stories about providers who will just submit a blank prior authorization form just so that they can receive the denial letter so that they know exactly what criteria need to be met before they take the time to guess at health plan's criteria. So can you tell me a little bit more about your perspective on the prior authorization process and how that contributes to the health inequities? I think the current mindset is almost that of a Shakespearean play in that we are two worlds apart. And I think Without dialogue, without this type of communication, assumptions are made. And I think we get very frustrated with each other, and that just hurts the patient. And I think there needs to be better education and transparency about 
what each of us are doing. I mean, I think there needs to be more transparency from the payer side with respect to why even have prior authorizations, right? I mean, you say PA to any, let's just keep in the company, a dermatologist, dermatology resident, they cringe. They have like a Pavlovian response where they'll shudder, you know, or like they'll have a seizure because these really have been detrimental to getting patients their medication quickly. It's a lot of work for them. I mean, we have a full-time PA coordinator here. And even with that, there are significant delays getting patients their meds. So I know there are various programs in place. The AED is a great resource for a PA helper, so to speak. But I feel like we need more communication. We need to be at the table more often to kind of go back and forth in terms of what each of us are seeing in our daily workplace, but also what our needs are. And ultimately, how does this collaboration help the patient? Because I feel like we're on opposite ends of the pole and then somewhere in between things can go awry. It could be a fax never got to where it needed to be. It could be something, you know, one document was needed, another was sent in. There's so many different things that delay care that actually don't fall in either of our purviews. So I think at the end of the day, we we need to come up with a more streamlined process that everyone understands and that there's education on not just for us, but also for the patients. You know, we actually hand out a form that explains what a PA is, how long it takes. Just doing that alone limited the number of calls we got asking why it wasn't on medication approved and they were just seen 12 hours ago. So I think there's a lot we could do together to really elucidate what this is all about, why it's even happening, why does this even exist, but also how to make it as efficient as possible and how everyone can play their part and everyone could be a, an active stakeholder. And if we do that, I think we'll get along a lot better. I think patients will also have realistic expectations about what they're going to see happen and over what time period it's going to happen. And then everybody wins. Add that to the list of problems that if we solve that, we can retire very peacefully, right? I think we um, get a Nobel Peace Prize, to be quite honest, Stephen, if we figured that one um, out. I also have to give you a shout out. One of the things that I did not expect to come up today was Shakespeare. So uh, thank you for, for doing that. So yeah, I mean, I think with prior authorization, we have this mindset as the payer community that a prior auth is a prior auth. But I also think that prior auths are general source that can contribute to health inequities in the sense of Different provider offices don't have PA coordinators, right? And and they they, um, have to take the time to fill those out. And a lot of prescribers note this in, in many surveys that this is the number one burden that they have to deal with. And so when you take those health deserts that you were referring to previously or community clinics or whatever the case is, and you start whittling it down and you say, patients who go to those clinics tend to be prescribed biologics at a lower rate than in private clinics. And there's data to show that specifically in rheumatoid arthritis I'm familiar with. I'm not so sure about atopic derm at this point, but it's a concern that if the prescriptions are not being written, what is the reason that they're not being written? And we also need to be aware that some providers will avoid writing for biologics because the PAs are too complex. I've heard anecdotes from individuals that said, We don't know what the health plans are looking for. We go back and forth just to get denied for topical therapies that are not FDA approved or that the patient's not going to respond to or that they've previously failed. And that's not appropriate. And it's just kind of nonstop. And instead, we'd prefer to go through patient assistance programs and and things like that. So that's a big challenge. But also that those clinics in those underserved communities tend to have fewer resources available to contribute to the time that it takes to submit and resolve prior authorization requests. So it's important that we understand that I think everybody who's listening to this will appreciate 
that prior auth is not going away, right? It's almost sort of a, you think of managed care, you think of prior authorization, it's ubiquitous, right? But how can we make it more efficient? And electronic prior authorization, hopefully in the future, or the near future will contribute to that. But again, we just want to make sure that we are aware that we don't want to just prior auth things just to prior auth them. We want to make sure that the prior auths that we're putting in place have value. And then on the opposite side of that, once the patient gets that prior auth approved, we want to make sure that the benefit design supports them actually being able to pick up and take their medication. And, and again, when you think of health inequity, insurance is not just insurance. Everybody's insurance is a little bit different. And the amount of coverage that they're going to have for a medication after it gets approved by the health plan is going to differ. And a $100 copay will certainly mean different things to different people. And, and so that's another challenge that we have that we need to constantly pay attention to, to avoid that sort of carrot and stick approach as, as you is that the term? A characteristic <laughs> approach? Sounds so, about right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so a lot to unpack. And so I know that we are coming up on time. So I just want to wrap up with some final thoughts here. And that is two questions for you. What are you most excited or looking forward to with regard to atopic dermatitis? And what are you most concerned about moving forward? I think... I would hope my excitement's palpable in terms of all the incredible investments in everything from bench to bedside. The pipeline is extraordinarily rich with new therapies, though I would argue the therapeutic options that have emerged in just recent years are, are really outstanding. And that's actually a little different from the psoriasis history in that we kind of worked our way up. And that's why, as Stephen, you mentioned before about we went from past 50 to 75 to 90 to 100. We're not taking that kind of that slow slope up to that 100% clearance. We're already starting there with some of the or even early systemic agents. So it's, it's very exciting that we have great options. But with those options, with that investment, we're going to learn so much more about this disease. Certainly, we may be able to identify biomarkers that could indicate which medication is meant for the which patient. And I'm sure as a payer, you would love to have that information. If we could just do a maybe a tape strip or a, a blood test that will tell us how well a patient will respond to a certain therapy and get them on the therapy. We know we'll keep them clear and get them to clearance from the get-go. I think that would be incredible. That really would be a game changer. What I'm concerned about are things that you mentioned, and I'm really so happy you brought up those points about given you're beaten down by PAs and, and you look at a patient's insurance and you don't even try, that because of the burden, you change the way you practice. You don't even try to give a patient their best chance because of the administrative burden, because you're burnt out. And listen, that, that also adds even to structural racism. You know, forgive me, like insurance, just looking at a patient say, just looking at you, I'm not even going to try to get you a, this systemic agent because I know it won't be covered without even knowing anything about the patient. And this has been well-documented. You're right. Like this is a real issue. This is a real issue facing dermatology. It's a real issue facing medicine in general. So I think that the way we could play a part is certainly making this process easier. And, and that's where it goes back to excitement. I'm excited that we're even having this conversation, that we are brainstorming of how to make this easier for everybody. And what can we do as a team to streamline this so that regardless of where a patient is in the mountains or in the inner city, doesn't matter. They have the opportunity to see someone who knows how to identify their disease and knows how to pick the right treatment for them. And, can, and then once they pick that treatment, the patient can actually get it. But I think with that will come a lot of cultural competency and really stepping outside one's comfort zone to think about even something as simple as telling a patient, you need to 
buy a tub of moisturizer and apply moisturizer skin every single day in conjunction with all the medication I'm prescribing, what is the cost to the patient? You know, what is the cost of the patient just even coming in to get that visit? Like, do they have to take off work? Do they get childcare? I think we need to be overall more cognizant of how our decisions affect patients and how that translates to costs in many different ways. So I'm both concerned, but also very, I'm inspired because I think there's a lot of opportunity to do better. And I'm excited because I know we will. Absolutely. And just to echo, I think you've raised a lot of great points. We've gone through a lot of different reasons for excitement, but we also need to uh, remember kind of where we are today and, and work to reach that new future that we know will be bright. So Dr. Friedman, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts today on how we can improve the quality of care for these patients with atopic dermatitis. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And I would also, again, like to thank Sanofi and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals for their support for this educational activity. Thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of your day. 